Let's let's go to James 2, 14 through 26. Before I get rolling this morning, I would like to pray for us as I preach and as you hear and participate. Let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you. We praise you in spite of the world that we find ourselves in. We praise you in spite of our circumstances. Lord, whatever we might be dealing with this morning, whatever confusion the enemy would try to cause us, Lord, we know that you are sovereign. We know that you are the king. Lord, and we know that you will use your word. It will not return void. Father, we ask that you would give us, Lord, a focus this morning, a focus on integrity of our religion, of our beliefs. Father, we thank you for this time to reflect on that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have been following along with my preaching in James, uh, we first of all talked about what James' role was. James was a bishop. He was in the church at Jerusalem. So he was in a very pivotal position and time for this new church uh, that was that was established in Jerusalem. Remember, James is a half-brother of Christ. Even in his own family, he did not believe in Jesus until the resurrection. So this man has that close of a relationship to our Lord, but yet didn't believe until he saw the evidences of the resurrection. So to make up perhaps for lost time, James comes strongly, especially to the Jewish community that he identifies with in chapter one, verse one, look at who this letter is to. James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. So James identifies who his primary audience is. And secondarily, that applies to us because James is speaking about a people of one baptism, of one faith, of one God. And he has people in his congregation directly that are of a mixed background, Um, being being Jerusalem, being primarily Jewish, but also uh, Gentiles who have come into the fold here. So perhaps one concise way of looking at the book of James is he is is concerned with religious integrity. Do we hear and do? Do we treat people differently based on their social class? Do we do these things that are uh, that are not of God or do we follow very closely in this unity of uh, of the spirit uh, in this unity of the church? 
So purity in our thoughts and desires. You remember chapter one. To be hearers and to be doers. And to be unified as one body in the church. Why? Why would James pick religious integrity as the thing that he preached most about? We talked a lot about corruption this morning in the Sunday school. Well, who is supposed to be the reflection of that person that is not corrupt? Who is supposed to be the guiding light in a world that is totally messed up? Us. To represent that we belong to Christ, that he has called us, and that he has changed our nature, and that we are of one spirit and of one baptism. We, James calls us, as the Lord does, to be a reflection of him. What a high calling. And we have help to do so. Right. Left to our own devices, as we talked about in Sunday school, we can't do that. We cannot do that. We can't reflect who Christ is. We have no moral superiority in and of ourselves. In fact, we have such depravity that we have to borrow someone who does have any kind of righteousness. And that is Christ. As we've spoken through James, James really relies on his brother's teachings. So he goes back and he refers to things a lot that happen in the Gospels. So to set the stage for today, I wanted to give you as background Matthew chapter 15 Verses 7 through 11. This is Jesus speaking, and this is not the only time he called out hypocrisy. But Jesus says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you by saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. It is not what enters the mouth that defiles the person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles the person. Really important sort of background and cross-reference for us as we dig into what James has to say for us today. Um, And we had a comment about a a pastor, pastor, very term used very loosely, that would say the Old Testament doesn't matter. Old Testament mattered to Christ. He quoted it right here. Uh, So did all the other writers of the New Testament. Boy, if the Old Testament's not important, then you're basically calling out the whole the writers of the entire New Testament. 
That's their qualification for what they had to say. Paul built his entire messages on the Christ of the Old Testament. So, wow, what a terrible, what a terrible thing to say. Uh, All right. James 2, 14 through 17. Let's start into our, our passage. And this is blinking on and off, kind of like my mind, right? Like <laughs> on and off. It's got a circuit loose. <laughs> All right. James 2, 14 through 17 says, What use is it, my brothers and sisters? If someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? In the same way, faith also if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So many times a teacher or a preacher will use a question to start off his message. James is no different. He used this question to stir our consciences. What use is it, my brothers and sisters? When he qualifies my brothers and sisters, who is he talking to? The dispersion and the church. My brothers and sisters, he's talking to the church. If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? That's the question that James is is answering for the congregation this morning. Can that faith save him? If you have faith without works, is it even possible to have faith in no works? So what is faith? What is faith? Exactly. So the best way to define terms, if possible, is to define them inductively. And we see the definition of faith in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is a certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. For by it, the people of old gained approval. Certainty of things hoped for. A proof of things not seen. Evidence has to be seen, right? Evidence has to be felt. If we walked into a a courtroom and we had nothing but hope, that would fall really short of being able to give that to the judge and to the jury. But here we have a, a, a kind of oxymoron, the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. We have the evidence in our uh, in our lives. We have the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our salvation and 
um, our uh, eventual redemption to be incorrupt. We experience the redemption presently and late in spirit, and later on we get to we'll get to enjoy that physically, right? As well. Um, what will that be like? Wow! I hope I'm like the most athletic, beautiful version <laughs> of myself that that you guys would have ever seen, right? Um, but anyway, not be silly. So we have faith. So what it works? Faith is those things that are the certainty of things not seen. Um, what are works? Here. Deeds, right? Here, here are the things that have come right from the Greek. Ergon. Does anybody recognize that root word? Ergon. Ergonomics. Yeah. Um, as an industrial engineer, had a whole class in ergonomics, right? But ergon, work. A worker that accomplishes something. This is from Strong's. Work is a deed or action that carries out or completes an inner desire or purpose. Okay. So this is the word ergon. So if if a work is a deed, it's something that we do, and that deed is qualified as something that's carried out from an inner desire or purpose. And then faith, could faith serve as that inner spark of purpose and desire, a new heart of flesh instead of stone? If works are deeds that carry out an inner desire, then two verses among many I would like to present to you as that being the case to, to kind of underscore that they they carry out an inner desire. In James 1, right in the book that we're in, right in the epistle that we're in, James said, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. So is the devil made me do it a good excuse? James says no, because it reflects a desire that started in you. The devil doesn't just drag you along and make you do something against your will. The devil's just there as an amplifier. He just throws gas on the flames, right? But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Secondly, in Luke, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from which that fills his heart. So remember where we started in Matthew. When Jesus said, what comes out of a man, that's what defiles him, not what goes in. So 
cheesy diagram. But I wanted to burn this into our brains this morning. White, universal symbol of good, right? I watch Westerns. You know, I have watched Westerns before. The guys that wear white are the good guys. The guys that wear black are the bad guys, all right? <laughs> so top line, out of the good person, out of a good heart, out of a redeemed heart, come the desires that come up here to our brain where we conceive of doing that good, where we plan on doing that good. And then we have good fruit. And then that leads to life. The evil person, which we all were before the Lord saved us. Evil people were ties to. The evil people <laughs> do wear ties. Can confirm. <laughs> A lot of them do. The evil folks have an evil, corrupted heart. It, this is this is definitely not a Disney message right here, right? Uh, when when we watch different things, it would be follow your hearts. You know, just follow. No, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. The scripture says so. This evil heart and desires brings forth this crazy, corrupt thinking and planning to do evil, which results in bad fruit, which ultimately results in death. So this whole past, this whole thing starts in the heart. Starts in the heart. Um, now. How do we know that works are going to follow our salvation? That works are going to follow our justification? Well, because God planned them. God planned the deeds and the works that we would do. Ephesians 2, I'll qualify that with Ephesians 2. 8 through 10, what does it say? Paul says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And it is not, this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So I think if we're going to answer the first question that James poses, can we have faith and not have works? No, resoundingly no. Because just as God planned from the foundations of the earth that we would be saved, what did he also plan? He planned good works after the result of our salvation, which he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Okay? So, resoundingly, no. We'll continue to qualify and continue to answer James' question. Can that type of faith save us? 
Is it even faith? Let's continue. James 2, 18 through 20. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my, my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? So let's break this down. First of all, why, why use this rhetorical kind of device that James is, is using here? You have faith and I have works. Almost like there's this kind of dualism, like there's faith and then there's works and they're somehow separate, right? He's doing that to contrast, right? What the real point he's trying to make, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith plays out in the works. We'll continue in Hebrews in a moment. And we'll see that each person that it mentions in the hall of faith, it says, by faith, this person did this thing, did this thing, okay? What about, uh, what about you believe that God is one? I, I think that that just continues to call out who, who his direct audience is. Yeah. You believe you believe that God is one. Who who believes that God is one? Who repeats this even today through through millennia? Orthodox Jewish folks repeat this. I mentioned it last time I preached, and I wanted to sort of give a little bit of meat on it today. Um, I do not know Hebrew, so this second line here. They say Shema. Shema means hear, listen, just like an old country preacher. Listen, congregation, I'm telling you today, you know, listen. Um, I won't go country preacher on you. But Shema, Ya Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one that's still repeated every day, morning and evening. If you're an Orthodox Jewish person, you're going to repeat that. So it's kind of like James here and later on when he mentions Abraham, he's kind of like getting that red hot poker out for his audience, right? Because if you're going to use some fighting words, Wilkes County, all you got to do in the Jewish crowd of believers is to talk about their practices every day. You believe that God is one. You're right. You know, he says you do well. But I want you to know that the demons also believe and shudder. Just contrasting. Before, when I thought about this, um, I thought about my uh, lessons in Spanish. Spanish is really cool because it has two words that mean to know that kind of separate this reality for us. Spanish 
saber means to know factual information. So I know someone's name, okay? A saber, okay? Saber means to know factual information. Conocer means to know intimately. So I know my wife, conocer. I wish that we had something like that in English that was that direct of a dis distinction because that's really what James is trying to pull out here, okay? <clears throat> so you know that God is one, right? You know some facts. You know some facts. Even historians that are secular would acknowledge that Jesus existed, would acknowledge that Jesus was a person. But is that faith? That's just knowing some facts. And look at what the demons do. If anyone has seen or knows God, it would be these former angels, right? What do they do because of their knowledge of God? They shudder. They're afraid. Their knowledge of God only brings about fear. If the knowledge of God only brings about fear, then it's only half of the picture. We should have fear and reverence towards God. But then as we know him, as we know the goodness in Jesus, and as we have been saved by him, we're no longer afraid of God in the sense of we don't just think of God and shudder like these demons do, right? We think of God and, oh, man, when I become convicted, God, I'm so sorry I failed you, right? We have that sort of fear of God. But ultimately, we don't have the fear that would cause us to just sit and shudder at the mere mention of the name of God. That's what the demons do. Perfect love casts out fear. The demons don't have that. But are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Can good works happen apart from faith? I think the Ephesians passage that we read says no. Let's continue to, to read in Hebrews to further qualify that. If you turn to Hebrews 11 again. <clears throat> Three through five says, by faith, we understand that the world has been created by the word of God so that what is seen has not been made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, he did a work, right? Through which he was attested to be righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up. Or before he was taken up, he was attested to have been pleasing to God. Number six, verse number six, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. It's impossible to do good works if we don't have faith. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists 
and that he proves to be the one who rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, there's a flood coming, Noah. You've never seen one of those, but trust me, a flood is coming. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according in faith. By faith, Noah, who was God's man, right? Belonged to God, one of God's people. By faith, one of God's people did a good work that God had prepared him to do, right? And we, we can rattle all down through Hebrews um, in chapter 11 to get both that definition of faith and to see by faith the good deeds that God's people did. By faith. Um, so my point, if you, if you get what I'm putting down this morning, my faith, my whole point here is that faith and works are inseparable okay um that we will we have both we are given faith to do good works and all of that is a logical sequence of what god has planned for his people And I talked about these different aspects, about God being one and how that would hit those people between the eyes, about the demons. And I talked about the Spanish, but didn't talk about the Greek. Maybe the Greek might be more important. But there is a difference in the use in some places for the same root word. Um, pisteu, um, you can have a belief that is the knowledge of, or you can have a belief that is in birth by the Holy Spirit, by God, that is his grace. It's that saving faith. Um, and you have to really have the context to understand which James is talking about. When he says the demons believe, it's that factual basis, right? The demons aren't saved and can't be. Um, so the, the faith that is the inbirthing that God gives to us, in other words, and, and forgive me if this isn't 100% theologically concise, but... The way that I think about it is belief by itself is human and faith is divine. So just this factual type of belief, that's all like men can do that in and of themselves. Having faith, they can. Right. Now, uh, another thing that would hit his primary audience and hopefully us as well between the eyes he moves on to abraham james 2 21 through 24 
Was our father Abraham not justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this might be the toughest part of today's scripture, because superficially, this may appear to be a contradiction of what we would read in Romans chapter four, okay? Much debate and much to do has been, it was James refuting Paul, or if we have a later date for Paul and Romans, was Paul refuting James? I really don't think it's either one. I think that both of those brothers were speaking towards the same reality, which is Paul says that we're justified by faith alone. James says you are justified by faith alone, but works will follow that faith. Why would James point to Abraham? It's right, right in between the eyes of the Jewish community. That's who they're, that's who they're looking at as their father. Okay. And what's, what is kind of setting us up for even more of a juxtaposition of Paul and James is that they use the same word justified. Okay. Um, it is this decayo uh, to show to be righteous and declare to be righteous. There are two different usages, though, of this same word, much like our belief word, pisteo. This is the same kind of thing where you have one word that has a little bit contextual difference between the meaning. So here, this word can be made to, to make righteous or to, to regard or show um, to acquit uh, the, as righteous. So I know that we have a limited time this morning, but I do want to give a really important cross-reference here to us because we need to, we need to understand this. If, if ever asked about this, does, does Paul militate against what James says or vice versa? So if you, um, if you will, turn with me to Romans 3, and I'll start with verse 28. So Romans 3, verse 28, and we'll read into chapter 4 somewhat. Now, Paul is speaking about justification by faith. Justification being that justification that is in front of God, being declared justified by God. Okay, so that use of the same word. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart 
from the works of the law? <clears throat> or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Far from it. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, the wages are not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we must say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal on the righteousness of the, of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. So that while he might be the father of all who believe, without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who do not, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law but through righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, a.k.a. Jewish, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. That is God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that do not exist. Echoes of uh, Hebrews, right? In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be without becoming weak in faith. He contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. 
Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and be, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not only for his sake. Now. Not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised because of our justification. So what does Paul say and what question is Paul trying to answer? The question that Paul is trying to answer is how can a man be justified? How can a woman be justified, justified in being reconciled to God, right? How is it possible? So James and Paul are asking two different questions. And for that reason, even though they're, they're both talking about justification, They're both using Abraham as an illustration. They're both using a very similar word for justification in both the Romans passage and the James passage. They're answering two different questions. Loved what R.C. Sproul quoted from Luther in the video that that I'm going to give you as as a source today. Justification is by faith alone but not by faith that is alone, (laughs) okay? So we are justified. We are made righteous in the sight of God, okay, by faith alone. Um, But that faith is not alone in that it is accompanied by works. I shared this to our little Facebook family group, but... I really recommend that you go and check it out. If you just look up Paul versus James R.C. Sproul, 15 minutes well spent, okay? When I come across a tough passage like this, I lean on more knowledgeable, more experienced pastors, and he certainly was one. Um, Not for nothing, but they ask him a question in this video, And he just stands there. He just sits there and riffs on it and does perhaps a better job in 15 minutes than I have in 45. Okay, so he he's par excellence. R.C. Sprawl. But excellent, excellent uh, source video for us to look at, too, to understand this. So just to kind of condense his points and the points that I've shared with you. Um, the writers are answering two different questions. Paul says, how can an unjust person stand in the presence of a just and a holy God? And James says, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Um, and they both use the same, the same word, the K-O, uh, which is justification. And you think about it, too, they do use Abraham, but they use Abraham in two different parts. Paul uses Abraham 
when he believes and it's credited to him as righteousness. That's somewhat timeline wise before when we get to um, Genesis 22, when it's talking about him and Isaac, which is what James is pulling out, right? The, this thing with Isaac, where he sat, where he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. All right, let's wrap it up. James 2, 25 through 26. So now that we know about Abraham, now that we know that it is by faith that we do good works, in the same way was Rahab the prostitute not, all, not justified by works also when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So again, another example of someone, and I think that this is a beautiful thing that James did here. He used Abraham, the father of faith. Huge. Just the character of Abraham looms over scripture, right? We spend a long time in Genesis talking about Abraham and his life. Then he goes to Rahab. <laughs> The opposite of being fully Jewish, right? She was outside uh, the Hebrews. She was outside of the faith. But yet the Lord saved her and used her for good works to allow his people to enter into the promised land. So he uses Rahab, the somewhat minor character in contrast to this big Abraham who, who we know so well. And then sums it up uh, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So did Rahab's works save her? No. Did her works demonstrate that she was saved? Yes. So last time I preached, there was a silver bullet, right? That mercy triumphs over judgment. We end the same way today. We've got another silver bullet in our gun, okay? Um, we're just as the body without the spirit is dead. So also faith without works is dead. Faith is not faith unless it yields works and fruit. The Lord has the ability and the x-ray vision to know those who are his. How does the church and how does the world in general know that someone is a Christian? Works. Works. That's, that's the only way that they know. I, we can't, we can't examine someone's mind superficially. We have to see what plays out in their life, right? So there ought to be a distinction between us. I hope you've had the experience where someone noticed something was a little bit different in your life or a lot different. Um, because God calls us to have these good works that he predestined us to have long story longer Romans 8 
is a great is a great one for us to end on. Romans chapter eight, verses twenty eight through thirty, gives this progression of of God's planning. Okay, gives His planning process here, and we know that God causes all things to work together for those for for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. All of these things go together, right? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified we have all of these things all of the plans of god all right there in progression so it's impossible for us to be called and not be justified it's impossible for us to be predestined and not called all of these things just like works are predestined in God's plan for us. So the challenge for this, I really like this term, is a functional theology. If we think these are questions for our introspection this morning. So number one, what do my desires reflect about my beliefs. Just kind of take a little bit of a temperature of yourself this morning. What is it when you when you get up from here today, you go back to your homes, what desires do you have? And what do those reflect about your beliefs? What do my thoughts and actions reflect about my beliefs. What do my thoughts? So there's desires. There's those things that I want to do. What are my thoughts that are a progression from those desires? And then how do my actions? Character is who you are alone without any lights on. Right? Alone in the dark. Who are you? Does does your thought life, does your heart life, do your actions outwardly reflect that you belong to God? Because coming back to where I started, James is concerned that we not have the false face on Sundays and walk away and have no action, have no change in belief, have no change in actions. There's this kind of acceptable cultural Christianity where you kind of go through the motions. You kind of show up at church. Maybe you maybe you even try to dress up for church. Um, and you try to check all the boxes. But meanwhile, you don't really have a faith because if you had faith, your works, your deeds, your fruit would reflect that you have faith. 
So for me and you, let's let's reflect on this today, especially um, as we get ready to go into our time of of the Lord's Supper. What are we called to do in Corinthians? Right. We're called. To examine ourselves. Um, We often look at these verses in 1 Corinthians 11. And we pick up two things out of this. We see that as often as we do this observance, we remember him. And we also see in verse 28, but a person must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as we get ready to do that with each other this morning, let's think about our integrity. Our integrity towards our beliefs. Do our actions, thoughts, and desires line up with our calling to be who God calls us to be? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, it is sharp. It is a two-edged sword. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Father, to be convicted, to follow after you more closely, Lord, to do those works that you call us to do, Lord, without hesitation, that we would proceed and walk with you Father, as we are called to do. Father, I pray for us that we would reflect who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.